Okay, so what kind of anime do you listen to? Or, um, or what, what kind of anime do you watch? Do I watch? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a lot of people talk about Attack on Titan. That's a very interesting uh, kind of anime, just because it's, it has like a lot of political connotations to them. Yeah. Can, can you can you go there? Because I, I will say yeah. a lot of the clients I work with love that fucking show. They do, right? Yeah. They do. They yeah, talk yeah, a yeah. lot about it. So I would love to hear your take on it. Uh, well, it's uh, there's an interesting uh, interpretation about Attack on Titan that uh, kind of shows you what the the warning signs of fascism are. Mm. And this idea of like delusions of grandeur and like narcissism. The main character is actually the fascist oh. that most people don't know because you fall in love with them and they, the show does it on purpose to get you to like understand and like be sympathetic and, and care for. And then you start to realize like the choices he's starting to make, he's starting to believe his own fiction, right? Oh, oh dude, it's, yeah. It's, dude, that's nuts. It's a great show. It's a great show. And a part of it too is like there's, you could also see how like their their society that they make in in the in the show, like the hierarchies that exist and the different ways of like stratify societies that are there, and how people have to like fall in line. If you don't fall in line, the the, the repercussions that exist for uh for for certain people who don't necessarily like adjust to what's going on. He's one of those people. The main character, uh, I think his name is Alan or Aaron. Aaron, that's his name. Aaron, and he. He doesn't fit in. His father was like a. The whole show is basically you trying to figure out what's going on, mm. but you're always given like small little tidbits of what's actually happening in that society, and then over time you start to realize like, the society you thought was a society is actually a a small subculture. That was cut off from the rest of society. Oh wow! Because they were they were actually uh, a persecuted people, and they were trying to create. In a weird way, it almost remembers like the Jews going into Jerusalem sure. right, to, to make their own to, uh, to make their own society from persecution in Europe. It's exactly that kind of uh, reflection, like art imitates life type of thing. Oh yeah, you can see so many parallels when it comes to that, which is awesome. Like that that show is great. Um, what other shows have I seen? I mean, I, I, I mean, I grew up on anime. Like when I was, I'm a '90s kid, so <laughs> uh, Dragon Ball Z was definitely a show. Uh, that I I hold near and dear to my heart, and uh, I mean it's changed a lot since sure. since then. But it was definitely a you know a great show that like created part of my of my childhood and and, and my adolescent years. So uh, what's what's the phrase? And I don't think it exists anymore because anime is a lot more mainstream. But yeah. back in the day, where where if someone was really into anime, where they called a a weeaboo. A weeaboo. Have you heard that before? No, I've never heard. No, that okay. I, I think it's a little bit of a derogatory term for somebody who's like really into anime and, and thinks anime is like real oh. life. Where, I always, I mean, every time, yeah, when I was growing up, it was just like a nerdy thing or a, okay. geeky, a geeky thing to do. We were geeks. Okay. Um, but now geeks and nerds are cool. So now, <laughs> see, I'm always telling my clients that it's like, man, you don't understand. Like back in the day when I was growing up in the 90s, yeah. it was not cool to be a geek or a nerd. But now it's like kind of hip. It's super hip, so, especially with the new generation. I would oh, say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with the new generation, the being geeky and nerdy. I actually went to the. The convention center here in Houston, like a couple oh, yeah. of weeks ago. The the George R. R. Brown Convention Center? I think that's what it is. Okay. I'm not very familiarized with the whole place yet. Sure. What what what'd you go see? I didn't see anything. We just walked around the city. Like we were walking around like the uh, what's this area that's next to the 
I don't remember the name cheese. That sucks. Um, but it was like a really nice area. It was like a lot of green everywhere. Oh like, yeah, you were going to uh, not City Green, um, Discovery Green. Discovery Green. Yeah. Yes, that's the place. Dude, that place is awesome. Yeah, it's really nice. It was really nice. So I was showing my my family around just to, like see the area, and then. There was an anime convention happening at the convention oh, center. Oh yeah, right a there. lot of my clients were there. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and there was there, there we go. I was like, wow. And then like they had like little posters and stuff, or like little uh, almost like little advertisements, like being a nerd is cool. And I'm mm. like, whoa, where was this when I was growing up? Seriously, like, that's man, <laughs> insane, insane. I wonder if that'll be one of the ways that you can connect with you know some of your current students. Yeah, I, I'm gonna make that assumption that a lot of them are probably gonna be into anime. Oh, I, I wonder if they're gonna want to bring that up, or if you can somehow bring that into some of the political science stuff that you're doing. Ah, oh, man, the cool thing about teaching is that you can, you know, you can bring everything. If it applies somehow, you can bring anything and everything to the totally. experience, right? Totally. Um, I just have to. Right now, I'm just trying to stay afloat because it's I'm just first semester just starting out, and I yeah. feel like I'm slightly overwhelmed with what I'm doing. Dude, I bet. But I'm also trying to provide the students as good of a of a quality, you know, teaching product. I don't like to use the word product, but sure. But that's what the university you know, I need to provide for for, for students, and and I want to make sure that best case scenario they're critically thinking and they're questioning outside of what they're reading in the text oh i love it right because that's the whole point i want to complexify what's what's happening yes and also complexify what they're reading because i'm like yeah i gave you an assigned book but don't use that book as your bible because that <laughs> book will be scrutinized yes right as much as possible oh, um, i love it and i think that's the whole point like students should that's a skill that one needs to develop they don't realize that they're, develop, that they're developing that skill um, but I am definitely internally doing that for them as I'm bringing up different perspectives and different ideas that aren't being mentioned in the book. Yeah, dude, Rudy, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying. It's just the good thing is too is like I'm. Giving I wish I would have had you as a college professor. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? I was talking to someone not too long ago, a, a good family member of mine. I was sure. like, man, I wish I had myself to teach myself. <laughs> that would have been great. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I wish I would have been taught American politics like as myself, as a, as a student. Sure. That would have been great. Dude, because I'm, my political science courses were boring as fuck. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And it's true, man. And it's very, you can, it can very easily get boring. Yeah. Um, I think that's well, a bit of the stereotype. Do, and it's and it's interesting too because now that I'm on the other side, I'm on the the Wizard of Oz side. The, ah, right? Like behind the veil. You're the expert. Yeah, I'm behind the veil now. Um the interesting thing is that I noticed that it's like it's not that hard to make mm. things interesting for students. You just gotta put in a little bit more effort than if you just I don't know, like just took everything at from from face value and then you just presented it as it was. Just be a slightly more creative and just maybe put 20 more minutes that you normally would put. And that makes all the difference. Yeah. It makes all the difference for them because you see it in their faces. You're like, whoa. Like, what? Every time students are like, I'm confused. I'm like, I did my job. Like, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point is to be confused. So you're in the business of making people confused. Yes, because confusion creates <laughs> opportunity for growth. Ooh, right? Man, that's yeah. good. Yeah, man. Like uh, Confusion is like, I want to know more because... Confusion is actually a liminal space yeah. that one exists in. And what one really wants to do is to find the space that you can now be less confused, right? Yeah. But how are you less confused? By learning more. Yes. So that it's literally like a, it's a, it's a need that human beings have. I mean, this, it's funny enough, we're on the podcast, so this is goes straight to Eric Fromm. 
And yeah. from is all about this idea of like, you know, the conflicts, the internal conflicts that exist within people. And confusion is one of those conflicts. The whole point is to overcome it because once you can overcome, uh, I guess it, the way I think about it is like it's overcoming this like ungroundedness. Mm. That's the that's the word that I'm thinking about. Okay, because uh, you, you, it's it's like you have no footing. You don't know what's going on. You don't have a you don't have a compass. When you don't have a compass, there's a lot of anxiety that exists, oh, yeah. right? Um, and is the, it like a, a sense of your free falling? Yes, free falling, not knowing where you're dropping, and it is very, very uncomfortable, right? It's a yeah. very uncomfortable feeling, and you're looking for ways to try to alleviate that as much as possible. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. And, that's, and human beings are constantly doing that in all kinds of different dilemmas that they're experiencing, but when it comes to learning, for example, that's uh, one way to overcome the free falling is to dig in deeper to mm. see what ha- what is happening behind the surface level so that you can have a better ground right to to know where you stand and you know thankfully the students have a, a person like me that that can that can guide them in in certain directions right like yeah. i'm just nudging them i'm not necessarily trying to tell them this is what you have to believe because most of the time what i want to do is like i want to ask questions okay so that students are like i'm not i i'm not big on like lecture heavy teaching I'm very much into dialectical conversation. I love that. Yeah, that's, that. that's kind of like how I teach my classes, and it keeps them on their toes. And you don't, I don't. I, from what I've seen, at least so far in, in my experience, like most students aren't on their phones. You're okay. always, always going to have people who check out because they just don't care. Sure, they don't like, give a fuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I can't capture everybody. Yeah. That's not yeah, my yeah. job. No, but, no, no. But the majority of the classroom, you could just feel the energy. Like, people are here. Like, people are present. I love that. We're engaging. We're having conversations. And and, and, and that's rare these days, I it would is, say. It is. It is. Especially with the, the social media. Social media situation. and just, yeah. like, phones all the time. 15-minute uh, attention Dude, spans absolutely. and all this stuff. People are goldfish. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? When you have conversations and it feels like you're having a car like a genuine conversation what happens is that the students are on they're like oh crap like i gotta be on because you might pick on me yeah 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 <laughs> you might pick on me and if i, I don't know what do. i'm talking about yeah exactly like, <laughs> i haven't done it yet because i've had enough folks like in a good gotcha. variety of oh, folks it'll constantly come. yeah but it'll come it'll, it'll definitely come it'll definitely come so man so rudy i'm just so excited to be sitting with you i'll, I'll just say a couple of things you know we kind of connected over Twitter, yeah. or I guess it's called X now, you oh, know, God, which yeah. is fucking crazy. Yeah. But it's amazing that, you know, you were in Colorado, but now you're here kind of in the broader Houston area, and you're literally sitting with me face to face. You're in this like <laughs> podcast studio. We're enjoying some incredible bourbon. Yeah. So I'm just happy to connect with you as a human. And there's so much that I want to talk to you about. I know we're going to get into from and, and this concept of eco neurosis, which yeah. I'm super interested to get into. But before we do that, can we kind of go back a little bit, maybe even into your childhood? Could you kind of trace out a little bit your experience? I mean, you just shared with us that you came from Cuba. Yeah. Fuck anyone that says Cuba. That's not (laughs) how you say it. It's Cuba. When you were seven years old and you immigrated to the United States, whatever you feel comfortable, whatever you can share, maybe tell us a little bit about where you came from and then how you got into this world that you're in now in terms of politics and psychology and ultimately we'll get into from yeah um man this is great <laughs> yeah it is it, this is definitely my story as podcast material <laughs> i love it uh, i love it and it's yeah it's better while we're drinking it is better <laughs> while we're drinking uh so 
I think the reason I got into political science and, and, and political theory specifically and philosophy and uh, just just thought that makes you ponder, stop, and become arrested by the mm. by the ideas of, of that you're tackling with, right? Um, it comes from like the the cultural background that I've uh, that I've been swimming in, like the being Cuban, said Cubano, as they say, um, as we say. Uh, it's it's like politically charged, mm. like we're and in that in a Cuban household, like you're constantly like having arguments. Like Cubans are very loud people. Um, we're very animated. And we are just dramatic about things. <laughs> uh, and I'm a very dramatic person because of that. It's, it's just part of, uh, you know, the, the, the lasting impact of, of, of how I was raised. And honestly, the politics was always a conversation in the, in the household. In the, in, the, in the living room, politics was going on. In, in the kitchen while we were eating, politics was going on. Like, it's politics constantly going on. And, man, do Cubans have a lot of things to say? <laughs> <laughs> Cubans have a lot of things to say. Um, obviously, the you know, as, as I was growing up, uh, one of the big taboos of the big boogeyman was socialism. Okay. Yeah, right? Like, in Cuban society, in Cuban households, socialism is, like, a bad word. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And Karl Marx is the devil. And, you know, anything that's socialist-oriented is going to tear apart families. And it's cute on paper, right? Like, these are the talking points that you sure, get in the, sure. in the household. And, man, did I, like, I believed it. I was like, yeah, this is all bullshit. Like, socialism breaks apart families. It happened to us. Like, we, my parents, like, look at us. We had to leave our our, 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 our living situation because it wasn't tenable. Um, and we couldn't politically express ourselves, blah, 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 all this stuff, you know. It wasn't until I, I hit, you know, uh, college. Mm. that I put those ideas to the test. And um, I'll just say this, they, they, didn't, they didn't stand up to scrutiny. <laughs> there you <laughs> That's go. That's how I think about it. So I was very, I was very, you know, I was very aggressive. So I, I was one of those aggressive students that would like talk back to their professors. Got you. Like and anti. I, yeah, anti, like, I think what you're saying is bullshit and here's <laughs> why. Like my whole, my own family like lived you know, lived in communism and like, we had to leave. How dare you like talk about this and like teach this into students. And, you know, over time, um, I met great mentors of mine. Um, and they, you know, they rocked my world. Like they, they rocked it in a way that was graceful, kind, empathetic, compassionate, but they also rocked it in a way where it's like, Hey, you got to deal with you know, you gotta deal with the, the years of, of of conditioning that you've uh, that you've experienced, mm. um, because I saw the world in black and white, and I and I slowly realized like, while some of the things that my parents experienced are very much true, sure, and I would never argue against that, because I can't, for example, right now I can't go back to Cuba without making a Cuban passport and then paying a shit ton of money. So that I can be recognized in, in, as a Cuban national, because mm. my American passport does not recognize. Just as an example, right? It's a great example. Yeah. Um, so there is obviously like authoritarian tendencies, and they they do they do exist in Cuba. I do not. You can talk to other people, you can talk to other Marxists, but I am not one of those Marxists who would tell you that in Cuba there isn't authoritarianism. There is there authoritarianism, is. Yeah. very much so. Um, but the way that I that I understand socialism today is much more nuanced. 
uh, than it was when I was, you know, when I was growing up. Sure. Um, and I didn't just take my parents' word for it. And I, and I challenged those ideas. Like, I think that was the whole point. Like, not knowing, I mean, as a kid, right, since I'm, we're going back to me being as a kid, I, I, yeah. had, I had tendencies of, of questioning things and asking a lot of why questions. My parents would get really annoyed by that. <laughs> really, really annoyed by that. Um, but and, I realized, in Spanish, I would be, ¿por qué? Sí, ¿por qué? ¿Por qué esto? ¿Por qué eso? ¿Por qué lo otro? And, you know, like, it's... And they were like, ay, Dios mío, este niño. Like, that's what they would say. Um, but, you know, it, I realized, like, I had a yearning for something. Mm, that's a good word. Yeah. I was yearning for knowledge. But in my family, we didn't have, like, very working class, right? Okay. My father, like, worked with his hands a lot. Incredible human being in his own way. Um, what, what did he do? He, you know, he did a little bit of everything. Like okay. in, so, in Cuba, he was a, a gastronomo, which is I would say like uh, the art of serving people. So he was like a bartender as well. Nice. And he worked in hotels. Um, he did a great. Uh, he did a great job uh, at what he was doing, but very com good conversationalist. I think that's definitely one of the things that I got from my father nice. too. Um, but you know, he if he wasn't doing that when he moved when we moved to the US he started working on cars so he started fixing up cars then he got into HVAC so he started fixing wow. up AC so it was always things with his hands um and for me like i never even though i learned how to like you know clean uh not clean my car but i like, changed my tires and work with my car like look at the oil change the oil cuz he wanted me to do that with him it's like every man needs to do this <laughs> you know every Dude, man needs to do that i, I uh, can barely change the fucking light bulbs mm. maybe i should be ashamed of that but oh, i can't no, no, no. I, I mean can't it's do fine shit. man it's fine i mean we're yeah we're living in very technocratic society <laughs> yeah. so it's totally fine um and yeah like i've had to learn how to like i i would, I would do jobs with him too like nice. clean clean air conditioners with him and stuff like that when i was a kid just to make a couple bucks here and there um, but I was never really, really into like the working with your hands thing. I appreciated it, but I, I, I don't know. I had interest. But you were into the life of the mind. Yeah. I was interested in other things. And even though my dad liked history and he was really into like talking about politics and, and, and philosophy and stuff, it was always like surface level stuff. Okay. For him, it was always surface level. Like he would watch a documentary. He's like, I know everything I need to know. The documentary has told me everything. That's a fucking amazing. Uh, were, were you guys yeah. big into Jose Marti? Oh, 100%. So that's another thing, too. Oh, I think... Uh, love Jose Marti. Yeah, I've taught him in my... I've taught him in some courses that I that I had. Uh, Jose Marti is definitely my political theory catalog. Okay. 100%. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have to teach him, like, the, you know, the... Pro, the apostle, you have to. The apostle of Cuba. Like, that's, oh, yeah. That's, and then also, too, a lot of students, like, really appreciate that I'm teaching... A Latin American scholar and not yeah. just not just constant white people. Not just constant <laughs> old white guys. Yeah. <laughs> old white guys. Right? Um, and uh no, he's great. He 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 definitely left like, an impact on me. Okay. In my writing. Like I remember I used to uh I don't know how much you want me to say stuff because we do gotta talk about other things, but dude, go oh, wherever okay. you want right, to go, right, man. Right. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> this is great. Uh well there were there were like uh we would do. We would read like Jose Marti poetry and stuff, like in my family. Really? Yeah, because my aunt was a. So my Dude, aunt's like a amazing. scholar. Yeah, my okay. aunt's a scholar because she's a law scholar at the okay. University of Havana. That's what she was. What she was teaching at. Nice. And me and her, like, we would always go to her house and being with her, like, she she was just an like. When it came to the 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 intellectual curiosity mm. and the intellectual development that I could have, she definitely like 
resonated with me. She was like, oh, Rudy really like, likes to... And we read poetry and we sang songs. Oh, we would hang that. out on the portal, like the, in the little patios, when the lights would go out in Cuba, because the lights would go out in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> just randomly, they wouldn't tell you. The lights just go out and then you just got to deal with it. Wow. Um, and then what happens is that people just get together and then they have like a little, little community... I don't even know what you call it, hangout spots. Mm. Like people just hanging out in the community because nobody, you can't do anything because there's no electricity. So you just have no choice but to, it's almost like hurricane parties. Yeah. When hurricanes happen. Oh, yeah. You know, there's no electricity. There's nothing to do. So what happens? You're forced to hang out with your community. Like yeah. that's literally what happens. So in Cuba, it just happened more often. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens more often. <laughs> um, and that's what you would do. Just hang out with them. And then we would just have like just... That's where, as a kid, I thought, you know, I didn't realize, like, how impactful those moments were. Mm. But I learned a lot in these, like, little community gatherings. Even though it was, like, a, an inconvenience for everybody, as a kid, I was getting so much from it. I was learning so much from it. Um, which, now I look at it, you know, as an adult, and I'm like, man, we need more spaces like that. We need yeah. to, as adults, and, and also, like, just in the society in which we live in, we need to have more communal collective spaces to be able to hang out and just talk and like adults and like old people and young people coming together. Dude. Like, and, and, and this goes, I think to Fromm's yeah. idea of relatedness. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. not that we have to go there right now, yeah. but I just wanted to throw that out there. Cause that's one of the things that really resonated with me about your article and just thinking about Fromm and the centrality of just, yeah. Relating to other people. I think that's huge. Yeah. I, yeah. And now that you're saying that, like, I, I think, unconsciously that that was what brought me to from okay yeah yeah because of the experiences i've had in the past as a kid developing as a person hmm. yeah it's just that from was speaking the language that i didn't know i was practicing okay but he put it into words hmm. and i i there's there, you know there's there's something powerful about making a liminal space or, or a thing you do and 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 putting it into a name yeah. And naming it, you know, and I'm just like, wow, like when you name something, it starts to carry more weight. Like Absolutely. that's always how I think about it. I was like, oh man, like that's what I was doing. Like that I didn't even know that was just it just felt like everybody was doing this, you mm. know, like that's how people think about it. Absolutely. And it's not. It's actually special moments, special memories, and they and they deserve names. Mm. Like just like people get names, right? Absolutely. They you deserve to name these things, and these things deserve to have histories right so that we can talk about them and think about them and, and, and invoke experiences because that's what it does when you name something and, and that name catches on that name is resembling what you know the, the 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 genuineness of the experiences that those memories you're gonna tap into those moments you're gonna go back to that yeah yeah it's like I, a kind of like a, you know beautiful i think the the brazilians uh, have a word called the saudade mm. that, and then and it's, it's a kind of like it's a kind of nostalgia Okay. But it's it's like uh, you reliving it, mm. like you being in it. It's not just a, a memory that you can no longer experience. It's actually something you re-experience as you think about and as you're talking about it Ooh, and as I you're like connecting it. with other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've had friends who told me about it, and I'm like, wow, there's no English translation for that word. That's so interesting. Good. Yeah, yeah. So, man, gosh. <laughs> what? So... Maybe we can go there at this point. Mm. How did you get into From, or how, how did you yeah. discover him? And, and yeah, maybe tell us the origins of of how you got into him, and then yeah, maybe 
begin to talk about why he's so important to you. Yeah. Um, I actually got into from while I was taking my undergraduate courses. Okay. And then as I was taking these like political theory courses. So I, I double majored in political science and, and philosophy. Okay. Okay. And then I, I took philosophy courses and I was loving them. I was like, wow, philosophy definitely speaks to me. I was never able to take philosophy in actual, uh, in grade school. Mm. Uh, it wasn't something that was taught in public schools in Florida, you know. Obviously, Florida now has Florida. Even, yeah, Florida has even, you know, it, 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 it has a continuity and it's gotten worse over time. So imagine. Um, I was going to say, it's probably gotten worse. Yeah, yeah, it has gotten worse over time. But it was already bad. You know, it yeah. was already bad. So we're that's just, a wild place. Yeah, Florida. we're comparing bad to bad. So it's, oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. But yeah, you know, even in there, like there were, you know, little pockets like that where people like me can exist. It's mind blowing to me. Yeah. That I, you know, that. In Florida, you you know the the structures aren't necessarily helpful for learning, mm. and yet one persists, right? And yet one keeps looking for these, one yearns for experiences, right? Yeah. Um, and then you just find them. You you know you start to attract these things that you're looking for. And I didn't even know what I was looking for, to be honest right, with you. I was right. wondering. I was I was just going around the world, just you know experiencing life, trying to see what spoke to me. And philosophy spoke to me. Philosophy definitely spoke to me. Then I realized, you know, I got into the political theory aspect of in, in political science, and I'm like, oh wow, like political theory is like a kind of philosophy, but it's it, it's it's a political philosophy, really. Sure. And the traditions that exist right within these uh, within these spaces um, really blew me away. Like I was, I, I want, I was a sponge, and I was ready to suck it all up. <laughs> I was like, sure. man, I'm ready for everything right now. Um, and that was the uh, that that was the beginning of like getting into from, and then when I experienced like I discovered the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, and that's when I started to just I remember I would go to classes and I would come out of them shaking, mm. like visibly, like physically shaking, like I was having like psychosomatic responses wow. to 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 the knowledge that I was like just taking in. Part of it was. I didn't have. I might not have had the the uh, the capacity to actually really digest what I was experiencing and understanding and reading. Sure. And then the other part was just there's a shock and awe to uh, to reading the Frankfurt School, and just also like getting into Marx too. I, I gotta say I gotta bring Marx into it because because Marx was also like a huge uh, a huge influence as well to get to from like. All of these are like building blocks to getting to from. To getting to yeah, from. Yeah, to getting to yeah. from. Um, and, and, and I read Marx and, and I had good teachers that taught me Marx. And I would say a good chunk of my, of my undergraduate uh, education was, even though I was doing political science, it was more like Marx studies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was reading Marx because you know what? I was told to hate this person. And yet right. as I was discovering and reading Marx... I was like, yeah, whatever I was told about this guy is not true. Mm. And I'm having my own personal relationship with his writings, which to me, I'm like, wait, like all the things that I'm being told are being completely debunked just in the economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, the, uh, the German ideology on the Jewish question. Like these texts, I was like, wait, who is this? Because mm. the marks most people think about is like capital marks, right? Um, and he's great. Like, like that that version of Marx is also good and has some really really interesting insights. But early Marx, like Hegelian Marx, is also uh, it's just you know there's so many places you can take that you know, and there's a lot of playfulness 
mm. in there as well. Which playfulness, I like that. Yes, there's a lot of playfulness in that early marks, and he's also talking about there's there's a there's a humanistic element to him, mm. which that's how I actually got my dad. Because my dad hates Marx, and he hates like anything socialism. But I, but I, I stopped using <laughs> as, as any good Cuban right, will, right? right. <laughs> but I stopped using like the 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 uh, what do you call it? Like the the the, the whistle, uh, the dog whistle uh, words of socialism. Okay. And I started using more humanistic language. Okay. And my dad was resonating, and I never told him like you know that's Marx, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's little stuff like that. And then of course, as I got to the Frankfurt School. And then I reached from, and I remember reading the Saint Society. That was like one of the first texts okay. from one of my classes, actually. Uh, I don't know if I can give a plug right now, but my, yeah, please. One of my one of my great colleagues, friends, and also mentors, like Brian William Schoolos, that's his name. Um, he he taught the class, and he, okay, and he also did work on From too. He did work on From and, and Adorno. Okay. But I was really, really into. I was much more into Fromm than I was into Adorno. I thought Adorno had. The reason Adorno didn't speak to me is because I have a working class background. Yeah. And Adorno was a little more. It was a little too elitist, and in, in his intellectual writing is a little more obtuse than I would have liked. And Fromm spoke to me. It felt like he was talking to me. Mm. I'm like, man, we're having a chit chat right now. Like we're talking. Like we're having a conversation. I love that. And he's not judging me. I'm. Not, I don't feel like I need to like look up words. Yeah. To understand what he's saying. Like, this guy is speaking to my soul. And I felt that. Like, I fell from. Did, so, did yeah. he come from a working class background? Do you know? I, no, I don't think so. Okay. okay. I don't think so. I think his father like, must have been a. Uh, he must have been been either like a, a religious like scholar. Got you. That, that's probably what, what Fromm's. Like, that's what Fromm's background comes from. Like, okay. There's a lot of like. Um, it, it's very religious actually. It's a yeah, big religious say, he does, background. He does yeah. seem to incorporate a lot of like religious and spiritual oh, yeah. ideas. He, he 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 brings in like uh, uh, like 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 Jewish and Christian mysticism, absolutely, as well as like that Talmud, Talmudic scriptures sure. into into his writing and his. Uh, you know, I've had to look this up. So I'm like, oh man, I don't know much about religion, but I got to look up <laughs> the stuff that Frum's talking about to right. see what he's talking about. Um, when I went further deep into into his readings, right. Um, but when I first like just was exposed to him, like I, I felt this like peacefulness just reading him. Sure. And then also just like I'm I'm being understood. Like I, you know when you, you know like I'll give you a great contrast. Like when you read Hegel, for example, mm. Hegel's work. Like oh, Hegel, yeah. you can spend a you know you can spend like a whole week just reading a paragraph trying to understand what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. But with from. There's parsimony in his language mm. and how he uses. I couldn't agree more. Right, it's it's very much like for the average person. Absolutely. But the the depth and just profoundness that exists in the in the understandings of what he's trying to say, right? Like that to me is what was spoke to me. I'm like, man, how can this guy be so profound and yet so simple mm. in the way he's presenting information? Like that blew me away. Also, too, just a, a disclaimer: I was not a very good writer when I was <laughs> when I was starting out. Uh, I still think I'm 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 as a writer, I'm a work in progress, but I'm much much better, <laughs> much much better today than I was when I was practicing writing as an undergrad, right? And also in grade school too, like writing wasn't a big thing, and I was let down by the system, and I really will say that. But you know, also can't be an excuse. So I, you know, I worked on, I worked really, really hard on where I am today with mm. my writing, 
And that's, I, I would say, like, that's one of my biggest boons to my students. Because I always tell them, like, as soon as, you know, the first day of syllabus, I'm like, hey, don't worry about the writing as much because I'm a lot more forgiving of that due to the fact that I probably experienced most of all the mistakes that one can experience when you're going through writing and the process <laughs> of writing. So nice. I, I always told them, like, hey, don't worry about the writing. I'm going to be there to help you out every step of the way and whatever, and whatever aspect of development in your writing that you're in. Um, but uh, where was I? From. From. Yes. So, so maybe, okay, so, so I know that I just actually just yesterday read through this article that you wrote, which I know you were just saying a minute ago, yeah. you know, before we hit record is, is still kind of in the process of getting published, mm -hmm. which I'm really excited about. Yeah. I, I wonder if we can maybe connect from to this concept of eco-neurosis. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? I think there's going to be a lot of people that hear that phrase, yeah. eco-neurosis, and they're going to think, what the fuck is that, you know? <laughs> Even though yeah. I will say, yeah. as I was reading it, my clients don't have that language, eco-neurosis yeah. or eco-anxiety, as some right. people say. Right. But man, do I hear about it all the time. Yeah. Especially now in this summer here in Texas, where we've literally had a record number of three-digit days over 100 degrees. It's fucking horrible. So that's not normal is what you're it saying. It is not normal, <laughs> man. Dude, so I have this autistic client who's obsessed with weather and numbers, and he was just saying that 10 years ago, maybe it was 20, the record high was like 95 degrees, and it's been way higher than that right yeah. here in 2023. Yes. So it's, yes. it's impressive and crazy how high the numbers have gotten. So this whole like climate change, yeah. global warming thing is yeah. fucking real. If you don't believe it, just come down here to Houston. You can stay in my guest room. You'll fucking be a believer. I oh, promise man, it, you. It's, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, eco-neurosis, yeah. maybe you can define that for us. What does so, that yeah. mean? Uh, honestly, so here's, an, you're going to find this kind of funny. I was unconsciously using the word eco-neurosis without necessarily defining it when I was, when I just started writing the text that okay. you were reading. Okay. Um, I, over time realized like, oh wait, nobody is using eco-neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of came up with the concept. Okay. Just like, you know, um, I like it. I came up with it not knowing that I came up with it, which is kind of funny. Um, what I'm really talking about is this, uh, like a certain, it's, it's a, it's a reinterpretation of climate anxiety. Which okay. is what you know we were talking about eco anxiety. Sure. And climate anxiety is, you know, the word says is it's it's a kind of worry of catastrophe or some kind of doom that's gonna happen in the future. So it's 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 an anxiety right based on the future. Sure. Um, that you can't necessarily see or know or how it's gonna happen. Um, so th that's that's the that's the the connection. it's an impending doom. It's an impending doom, right? Okay. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, that's the, that's the anxiety that exists from this, uh, this, this new development that we're experiencing because of, uh, you know, climate change and, and human made climate catastrophes sure. that we're experiencing. Um, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to reinterpret climate anxiety. You know, obviously like I debate with myself, like, should I create a new concept for all these other concepts that are <laughs> out there right now floating in, in, in academic spaces? about this idea of climate anxiety and i'm like well you know maybe if we all i always think about it, it's like we all can get together like you know do some kind of uh conference yeah people who are studying climate anxiety 
and we're not gonna, we're gonna all come together to come into agreement what the concept is. And I'm like, okay, I'll start using one concept. But for now, piecemeal wise, I'm using econeurosis just to give it more of a of a political flair to it, because climate anxiety comes from this, you know, the clinical psychology literature, and it's basically just assuming that it's a it's an individual ahistorical development due to climate change mm. and the climate crisis that we're experiencing um and you know because of that you know clinical psychologists are just looking at it as well how do we treat this in our clients right yeah i thought about it well i'm going to call it ego neurosis because neuroses uh just as the first reason why i use neurosis is because in in psychoanalysis neurosis has more of a a historical like pump to it, or I guess I, the way I was I always think about it was like it has a historical connotation to it. Okay, that's how I'm thinking about it. Sure. So the idea of neuroses comes from it comes from Freud, obviously. Yeah. And I always think it was like I always think of like you know civilization is, and it's and it's discontent. Sure. Neurosis is a development of repression, mm. and we're. By repressing, we're creating culture and civilization. So it almost seems like something that's required of us to do, even though it has these reverberating effects, yeah. right? Neurosis, well neurosis is one of those reverberating effects. Um, and I'm like, you to know, live in society together. Yes, to, you must repress, and by repressing, there's unconscious effects that take place, and that one of those unconscious as, as effects that we can see as reactions is a kind of neurosis, right? Sure. Um, Obviously, we can give different names to neurosis, right? But within that psychoanalytic literature, I was like, okay, neurosis has a really, I think, more of an impactful punch uh, just because um, it has almost like this, uh, how I just explained it, like a, this dialectical sure. understanding to it that by trying to make something work, you're also hiding something at the same time, mm. right? Um, and then the other reason why I use neurosis is because or eco-neurosis in the way that I'm using it, is because I, I think there's, as there's a, a historical development, it's also systemic, mm. right? There's a, To me, that that's the political, cultural aspect of the climate anxiety that we're not talking about. There's, there's a collective effect, there's collective neuroses going on, and we're trying to deal with it through individual means, through like cognitive behavioral therapy, yes, yes. just change your thinking change your patterns. behavior, yep. yeah, change your thinking patterns. Like you know, go out into nature, um, you know, go pick up some trash at the beach, <laughs> right? Like that. Those are some of the the uh, uh, the um, the solutions. I wouldn't even say remedies, right? Some remedies. kind of treatments, not sure. necessarily solutions. But um, and I was like, nah, like they're, they're that's like too individualistic. It's too individualistic. Like it might work for and people. Depoliticized. Depoliticized, ahistoricized, individualized, right? And I'm like, no, this has to be collective, systemic, political, and there has to be. I was thinking, I was like, well, how do we trace back these these psychological reactions back to something deeper in mm. ourselves and in our culture, right? Mm. That's why I called it econeurosis. So those, those are the two reasons. Why I wanted to change it to ego neurosis. I sure, mean, we can you know I can debate that with anybody, but that was uh, uh, those were the elements that were involved to try to do that. Okay, yeah. so so now now okay, so Rudy, with that, where does Fromm come in? And maybe let me just throw out if I understood 
your argument. Yeah. Let, let me just say that there was this great concept from I think the Sane Society of mm. the pathology of normalcy. Like 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 yeah. go there for a second and, yeah. and how that connects to everything you've been talking about. Oh man, I remember when I was like trying to develop it and connect it with the pathology of normalcy. The pathology of normalcy, what it does is that it well, it serves two purposes, I okay. think. Uh, the first purpose is to to create someone who's well-adjusted. Mm. And the second purpose is to mask things that exist in one's culture so that you can be a part of the herd. Mm. So you, you can be a part of the rest of the community, right? Okay. Because um, if you're not doing that, human beings have these needs, right? Like, and I think that's one of the most important things about Fromm, that he talks about human needs. Um, when he talks about like his, like his uh, philosophical anthropology on, on human nature. It's incredible. Like, I've never seen someone talk about human nature in the way that he has. Most people either say human nature is one way or human nature is another way. We're either greedy, self-interested, right? Like, if you read uh, um, uh, The Leviathan, but I forgot the, the author's name right now, which I should be remembering. Um, is it Hobbes? Hobbes? Yeah, yeah Hobbes. <laughs> uh, I was like, why am I not thinking of Hobbes? Um, so Thomas Hobbes, for example, yeah. thinks that human nature is a specific way. Right. Um, and it's most of the time, right? Like, you know, it's nasty, brutish, short. Sure. Like, it's, yeah. it's very, yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very pessimistic. It's a very, very pessimistic, pessimistic understanding. Yeah. And yeah. And then there's other people who are, you know, the idealist would tell you that, you know, there's aspects of human nature. Like, well, we can use reasons and we're not worms and all these things, right? Sure. Would that be Rousseau? Ah, uh, Rousseau's a little more complex. Okay. Um, I would, I'm thinking more of like Kant. Okay. Yeah. Emmanuel Kant here. Um, but yeah, Russo, I would not want to get into Russo. <laughs> sure. Right now. No, no. But Russo, maybe yeah. for another conversation. Another conversation for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, what was I saying? So yeah, and then Fromm comes in, right? And I'm like, wait, like Fromm can encapsulate the way he's talking about human nature. He can encapsulate both Hobbes and also the more positive orientation about human gotcha. nature. I'm like, how is this possible? You can so is it like this? paradoxical? It's paradoxical. Okay. Yes, it's 100 percent like how I think about it. It's like to me, paradox is in dialectical orientations are very very you know at least they're interrelated right they're connected to each other um and he thinks that you know human beings are capable of all kinds of things beautiful things incredible things great things but we're also capable of destructive things absolutely and hateful things right so he's like well you know this is all we're constantly fighting a battle within ourselves right and, yeah. and this is also relates back to Jung in certain ways oh yeah right? for sure and um he basically says our Current, in, current instantiation of society picks and chooses what aspects of our human nature want should be rewarded. Mm. And that's where I think it's interesting about from. It's like, okay, like the forms of society and the context in which we're living in develops a kind of person. And that person isn't organically created. It's synthetically grown through culture, right? Culture is a... And, I, and it's funny too because I, if you haven't read Norman O'Brown, you you definitely should because he's also been influential too. And Norman Brown has like, he thinks that for human beings, our evolutionary process was actually culture. Mm. So culture to him is a super biological development. That's what he calls it. And I, and I, I and, and in certain ways, I think I think Fromm actually would agree with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Culture is definitely like uh, if we're since we're no longer instinctual beings. Right. Culture takes the place of instinct, which mm. to me is like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, just never thought about it like that. Like, culture being an evolutionary process, like, whoa. Um, and then the pathology of normalcy is something we've developed, like, to his psychoanalytic concepts that 
we're looking at ourselves, right, as these creatures who have these needs. We're going back to the needs. And one of those needs is to be accepted. Okay. Like, if we are not accepted, we will go insane. That's one of the things that Fromm talks about. Um, and we, we have physical needs, and then we also have psychological mm. needs. And we always, you know, most people focus on the physical needs, but the psychological needs he claims are as important, and I, agree, I tend to agree with him, that are as important as our, as our physical means because if we are, if we are, you know, if we're taken away from these psychological needs that we need to have, sure, we do not function as, you know, capable human beings. We don't, we don't have the capacity of we of, of what you know Maslow would call like a hierarchy of needs, right? Right. Where we self-actualize, for example, a, a non-self-actualized human being, you know, is not for, from the psychoanalytic element. I mean, for Fromm, he'd be like, that's not a fully developed human being. Okay. And we can create societies that do not develop fully developed human beings, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the pathology of normalcy is. I always think about it as like a, it's some kind of a, a form of dis- defense mechanism. Mm. He claims that there's uh, there are these practices that we need to do, and we need to become well adjusted to them. Because if we do not become well adjusted, well adjusted to the practices of our society, then we become pariahs. Mm. And if we become pariahs, we lose community, right? We lose these psychological needs that sure. are really important to us. Um, and what do we do? We have to we have to mask ourselves. And a pathology of normalcy is a kind of learning to mask mm. because some people are born in the world a little too more, a little too sensitive, a little too neurotic, right? And what the pathology of normalcy is there to do, it's almost like a, I would always say it's like the hand of the reality principle. Sure. If you really think about it. I like that. Um, because the reality principle is supposed to, like, it's supposed to gel you into this well-adjusted member of society to be productive. Right. Um, but Fromm claims the reality principle is not created equal because with the pathology of normalcy, while you have to act in specific ways so that you don't develop these neuroses, it doesn't mean that those neuroses go away. They're just hidden. Yeah. Subterranean. It's subterranean, right? But the the thing is, is that if, if the majority of us are doing... You know, because he has like this very like uh, his orientation is like kind of like humanistic ethics. Sure. So his humanism has an orientation for like self development and transformation and aspects of insecurity, which he says we're lacking in in the society in which we live in. Our society cares too much about security. Mm. It wants us to feel like we should just be a part of. We should just be another number. And we should just be a part of the cog in the machine, right? You don't want to stand out. Because standing out could be the could be the difference between you getting a job and not right. Like that's yeah. like standing out could be isolating, and it can make you feel uncomfortable. It can make you feel vulnerable. Sure. And what you want to do is just like you want to kind of like people say, right? You want to stand out just enough, but you also just want to be a part of what's happening in the culture. Mm. So you're you're not rocking boats, okay. right? And that's what from is like almost like getting at with the mm. pathology of normalcy, where it's like. We need to we need to do this because if we don't do this, we're gonna go insane. But at the same time, there are these reactions. Like human beings react. Sure. And he gives various examples throughout history of how humans are reacting. 
like he calls him like he talks about slavery for example we've all like there's a pathology of of, of normalcy it, it became normal to accept slavery as much as it, it was to the white person as it was to the actual slave right absolutely right? so there's there's these there there's these 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 points of con contention and the reactions are the effects of what we normalize and he's saying those effects are the neurosis okay right those are those are the reactions that we need to be looking at which is like what are we sacrificing when we're adjusting yeah which to me is like wow that's man that's so good because I look at econeurosis and I'm like, this is an effect of us trying to adjust and pretend that everything's going smoothly. We shouldn't, we shouldn't completely transform our society because it feels like it's too hard, right? Like what does an individual, what can an individual do to get rid of climate, uh, of climate change, right? Like right. how do we, how do we even collectively start to think about these things? And these are, these are, these are collective questions that we need to be doing and we're not doing because people want to, it's easier to just accept and smoothly transition to things as usual. Sure. Than it is to actually like reckon with what does it look like after the end of capitalism, right? Dude, like that's, totally. Yeah. So, okay. So I think the big question I have for you is if, if the, if the right approach is not what I think a lot of therapists do, which is just to focus on the CBT side or just, you know, let's think about different thinking patterns and go out and kind of go into nature. I mean, some of that maybe can alleviate some of it. Mm. What, what is, I don't know if there's a solution in terms of a singular thing, but in terms of your approach and your philosophy and your way of thinking about things, drawing on from, yeah. how do we begin to think about and navigate this eco-neurosis in a more collective kind of political way? If, if the kind of depoliticized, dehistoricized, individualistic kind of approach is not really where it's at. Yeah. How would you, how would Fromm help us think about yeah. it? Honestly, you know what's funny? I'm going to go back to what I was saying earlier please, about please. the Apagones and, and the, the hurricane parties. Like, yeah. We need to, as a society, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not an architect of society or anything like that, but we need to start thinking about how we can engineer mm. not just spaces, but also organic moments mm. right of community of collective recognition to to be able to come together and talk about the heavy topics without pissing each other off or like just cursing each other off on twitter or facebook or yeah. whatever right because that's what that see these are the spaces now the, like social media is, is is has just become the unconscious accepted space like the commons the commons right that's the forum but it's such an, an an anonymous and almost like there's no responsibility to yeah. what you're saying. So it's like we need to create better spaces, like spaces amongst communities so that we can have better, not just better conversations, but also to to critique certain things about what's going on and how we're organizing ourselves as a society. Like, I, you know, I, I think about this like when I go back as, you know, just a teacher and my students, like my students are like, I always tell them, like, doesn't it feel weird? You come into the world and you just have to tacitly, tacitly accept that this is how things are and you just have to be a part of it. Mm. But society never asks you for your consent on, hey, should we be doing things this way? Should should we have some kind of, like, new reclamation on, like, how we can how we can go about organizing things in a different way? Right. You're never going to ask anything. It always asks everything of you, but you never can ask anything of it. So... 
I don't know what it looks like. And I maybe at least at, at, at a liminal level, it looks like, you know, electricity going off, people just coming together, and then we just have conversations. It's got to be more than that, obviously. Sure. It's, it's got to have a political element. It's got to have, like, it's got to have ethical, right, and, and, and justice-oriented, like, uh, uh, what do you got, like, uh, like guide or, or roads, right? Like, it, there's got to be some kind of orientation, um, it can't just be free for all. Like just all talk for talk for the sake of talking. Sure. Like there has to be action behind it too. Activity has to be a part of it as well. Sure. Um, but I just feel like the way we're we're just constantly iterating right now is not. It, it's just not being very helpful. Mm. It's not. It's just I, I'm not seeing any any impactful or effective means to try to you know. Lessen the lesion. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I think about it. Yeah. No, really, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, do, do you think? Because I think sometimes, you know, because so so much out there is like that individualistic, depoliticized, mm-hmm. dehistoricized kind of thing. I think people want to push against that. You know, address the systematic aspects, make it about kind of the larger structures. I, I agree with that 100%, but, but do you think there's also, I mean, maybe that's what I'm getting from you. Yeah. Is there a place to also focus on like the grassroots and the individual and just like your local community? I mean, do you have any thoughts there? Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to local community, it's a lot, that's, that's more tangible, I would say. Okay. Yeah. yeah it seems like it's more, more tangible. tangible, more realistic. It is like, especially within specific communities. Um, I mean, I, I, I I always, everywhere I go, everywhere I move, I always try to join my local DSA, like Democratic Socialists of America, and try sure. to see, try to see what they're looking at, the kinds of issues that they're dealing with, um, and just trying to be as helpful as possible. Like I, I'm, I never try to like take some kind of like holier than thou or like yeah, I can't of, fucking stand that. Yeah, yeah I'm just like hey, I'm just <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm just like everybody else. I'm trying to do my best, and I just want to collectively do it with everybody here. Like, what are our aims? I just want to make sure our goals are on the same page, but. Yeah. I just p- make me a part of the make me a part of the whole, right? Like that's all I'm trying to do. I'm just sure. trying to help people, and you know, meet people along the way, and like get to know others, and and create community. That's the whole point. Sure. Like be there for people. Like hey, provide a home. Like have a like if people want to have you know any kind of uh, if we want to have a book club, we could do a book club. I mm. provide you know you pro- I can provide a space for that. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Like use your own spaces as collective spaces, right? Yeah. Like that's how I always I'm like, yeah, man. Like have skin in the game. Have skin in the game. Correct. Yeah. Like be be a part of many in a sense. Like, yeah. No, that's what's good. mine is others, right? Like I mean, obviously there's there's a within reason, right? And what's sure. what's possible within the society in which we live in. But I mean, there's there's also a lot to jockey with. Like you can. Mm. You you're capable of a lot more than than most people think they are. It's just that we lack imagination. Ah, oh, that's key. Yeah, I think. we lack imagination on what we think is possible, and I think that's the problem. And also, too, we lack collective imagination, especially in the United States. Absolutely, there's like there's a lack of that, man. There's like people are yearning for it, but most people are like, it's this is always the case, and I always hear this from a lot of people that I've experienced in my life. Sure, where they're like. Man, you know, that's something I've always thought about, but I never, like, I could never put a name to it or I could never mm. point towards it. Like, I didn't know that, that that's what that was. Like, you're giving me so much more, much more clarity sure. on what that is. And I'm like, yeah, of course, because, like, we don't have spaces to talk about collective language. And I think that's the problem. To me, Fromm is, a, is, a, is skilled and adept at collective language. That's why I think he's such a, 
he's such a boon to being able to like reimagine yourself and also like okay. recondition how you can think of what, what's possible. Okay. Because even when it comes to self-actualization, Fromm would say, you can't self-actualize if you're not in a community. You can't self-actualize mm. if you're not in a collective. Sure. Um, and, and and being a part of a community is 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 what makes you have the eye of yourself in the first place. I like that. Your community reflects who you are. Sure. And you reflect your community. There's that dialectical relationship, right? That to me, I'm like, man, that's one of the most important like lessons that I learned from from was there. That's really good, Rudy. Yeah. So yeah. let me ask you this. I mean, maybe as we kind of come to a close, like yeah. You've mentioned sane society as, as a really important work. If, mm -hmm. if anyone's listening and they're like, they've heard of From, mm -hmm. but they've never read them, but they're interested after this conversation, is there one place that you think someone should start in terms of his body of work? Yeah. I know that's a tough question, but but what do you think in terms of your opinion? Yeah, I would start with his earlier stuff. Okay. Um, he has a book, like I think it was like 1947, uh, Man for Himself. Like that's, Man for Himself, yeah, okay. That's, it's obviously like there's... If folks are reading, I mean, if folks are reading it and they're expecting someone to be, you know, gendered pronoun, right, understanding, right. And stuff like, there's going to be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, just look problem. at the title. Yeah. Yes, yeah, man yeah. for himself. So it was he, the 40s. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, also the 52 and the 60s, but um, that was that's definitely one of the, I, I would say, like, the internal assumptions of From okay. are definitely laid bare there for you. And he, okay. like, you know, he breaks it down for you and he tells you exactly what his beliefs are mm -hmm. and his ethics. His ethics go back all the, all the way back to like Aristotle's like virtue ethics. Okay, which, it's like le ethics from like practical experience, like mm -hmm. learning as you as you learn what it means to be, for example, uh, a person who's compassionate. Like you can't practice compassion if there's a fear of being rejected, right? Like stuff like Got that. You. So there's there and you know like being brave, right? Right. It's a very like virtue yeah. ethics orientation. Which this, this shit isn't idealistic. Like you it's, have to know fear what it's like yeah, to be brave. Right? Absolutely. Like this, right. Right. So it's it's stuff like that. And then if there's another book that I would say like it's just very very impactful for me, and it helped me to also just like cultivate and develop my own beautiful relationships with with the human beings that I have. Sure. Um, the art of loving. It's a yeah, short book. I have that one of my books yeah. up there. It's a great one. It's a one. short book, and and honestly, it, it gives it's a great you great fucking book. It, it gives man. you like a nice little symphony of yeah. Fromm's works well said. without him necessarily going through everything, mm. which could be a little jarring. Um, but if you just want like a nice little like shots of awe of Fromm, sure, those two books are, are really good. Sure, yeah. So I, I'd be curious to hear how you know how you respond to this. But one of the ways that I bring in Fromm with some of my clients, usually like teenagers that are thinking about their future is his whole thing around you can have either freedom or safety. Mm. And, and, and and I actually yeah. kind of bring up like like different Marvel movies and things to kind of like flesh that out. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think everyone tends to want to think about the kind of safety dynamic. But in thinking through it therapeutically, they recognize how freedom, while it has its risk and its limitations, is really kind of what they're looking for. Is is kind of this sense of freedom as as a human being on this planet? Yes, uh, honestly, I I would equate that to love. Oh, it's the exact same yes. thing. Yes, like I couldn't agree more. Right? Thank you, right? Rudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because love is like, well, you have to open up. Uh, you, to want to experience love, you have to open yourself up to disappointment. Dude, totally, and heartbreak, right? and, and yeah. heartbreak, right? Like, there's no like, if you want to grow as a person. You have to experience the disappointment of of existence. Like that's part of it. Absolutely. Because if you don't, if you don't know what it's like to uh, to know, you know, sorrow 
and, and right. grief, then you don't know, you, you will never be able to enjoy the beauty of things, you know, like it's, and, that, and, that, and that's a lesson that Fromm teaches. Insecurity is actually a deeply important aspect of what it means to be human. Yeah. Deeply important because if you're not insecure and you live in a secure bubble, then you're never going to be able to expand your capacity of what it means to exist. You know, like, dude, totally. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. It's yeah. fucking amazing. Yeah. And that to me, like, that taught me lessons, man. That taught Same me lessons. Same here. And you know what? I'm still learning lessons. Dude, <laughs> I'm still me too. Lessons. Me yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how old you are, but I'm almost 40 and I'm. Yeah, I'm 31. And okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got quite a bit of time on you, but still, but I'm, still, I'm, man, I'm learning yeah. things every day. <laughs> but you know what? I take the orientation of like, take the risk, put yourself out there. Yeah. And no, no matter what comes, like it may damage you, but not being damaged is going to be more damaging than not taking the risk, man. Like, that's really how I think about it. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Okay. Yeah. So I know I've kind of come to the end of the questions yeah. that I had. I know we're about to kind of enjoy a meal together, which yeah. to me is a beautiful, you know, instantiation of this community that we're talking about, right? Like this, this coming together and, 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 and talking about ideas and, and, and figuring out a way forward. But before we end, is there anything else that you wanted to say about yourself or your work? Anything that you want to share? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm. I mean, I, I just recently graduated with my PhD, so that's <laughs> you know that's a that's a big thing for me. And um, I, I I I don't know. Like to me, like I just want to say, like to anybody out there, the journey's just starting. Like for mm. me, my journey is just starting. Yeah, I can't but wait even, to see where it goes. Right. Right. <laughs> And it's it's wild. I, I I have no clue where it's gonna take me, but I know that I'm gonna be true to myself, like be the person that I am and that I wanna be and that I wanna show to other people and and, and it puts me in spaces like this. Yeah. It, it gives me these opportunities and just be open to opportunities. Like it's it's what I wanna say uh to people. Don't don't be afraid of like putting yourself out there. Cause I've yeah I've definitely had thoughts where I'm like oh, should I be talking about these things should I should I do I even have an opinion and it's like no man you, you definitely do everyone has a, an interesting orientation in which they absolutely in which they can capture a part of reality right yes um and yes. if you can make it a if you can make it a story like or a song right like it, it, you know most people will resonate with do anything it. you have to say yeah 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 so that that would be me like I'm my my journey's just starting I'm very new to this. It did feel like graduate school was a very long journey. And, oh, yeah. And that was a journey in and of itself. I bet. Um, and I definitely felt old in that journey. <laughs> but you know what? Life is a constant state of dying and, and, and coming back to life. Dying oh, and coming man. back to life. Death yeah, and yeah. rebirth. Death That's and good. rebirth, man, yeah. And that, yeah, right? That's part of psychoanalysis and, and definitely part of from. Yeah. Um, and it's learning how to die and, and come back to life. Dying. Yes. Like, and just flexibility and adaptability and like learning how to like reorient oneself and, and 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 see new ways of how you can exist in the world because that's literally what's going on oh, that's great yeah. okay man well thank you so much for coming I mean, i'm i'm looking forward to our time after this but mm -hmm. uh yeah i hope this isn't the last time you're on uh psyche podcast me too man i, I i'd love to come back again this okay is, uh, oh well experience. no we'll, we'll definitely make it happen yeah all right man thank you have a good one